Hi, I'm Coy Atkins, and thank you for listening to today's episode of Crime Nerds. Today's episode is about a young college student who seemed to have vanished into thin air. This is the story of Suzanne Lyle. On April 6, 1978, Doug and Mary Lyle welcomed their third child, Suzanne. Suzanne's older siblings were quite a bit older than her. In fact, when she was about a year old, her brother would go on these paper routes and he would take her in a car seat on the back of his bicycle because customers gave him better tips with her. Suzanne grew up in the small town of Saratoga Springs, New York, and there were two things that Suzanne took to early in life, poetry and computers. She graduated from high school in 1996 and went on to college at Oneida State University. After one year at college there, she transferred to the State University of New York at Albany. Suzanne switched colleges because she felt like the University of New York at Albany would be better for learning computer engineering. And not only was the school better for computer engineering, but going to Albany meant that Suzanne was now closer to her parents and her boyfriend Richard. Suzanne and Richard met back in Saratoga Springs when they were in high school. They both had a love for computers, and in fact, Richard was the president of a computer club that Suzanne went to. While in college, Suzanne worked at a computer software store that was in a mall near her college. Nowadays, you can download computer software online, app stores, or wherever you want. But this was 1998, so think of this store as a blockbuster for a computer software. Instead of downloading it online, people would just go to the store and shop for the software they wanted. In February of 1998, Suzanne's manager noticed that she seemed a little stressed out, and he spoke with her, and she told him she was just stressing about an upcoming exam. Then on March 2nd, Suzanne took the exam that was supposedly stressing her out. Then she went to classes until 4 that afternoon. After school, she went to work. She ended up talking to her manager, saying that she thought she did good on the exam. The store closed at 9 p.m. as it did every other day, and Suzanne got on a bus and took it back to her campus dorm. But the next morning, Richard was concerned. Suzanne usually called or emailed him whenever she got home from work, but the night of March 2nd, he never heard from her. He tried to call the phone in her dorm room, but there wasn't any answer. Richard then contacted Doug and Mary, who in turn contacted the campus police. At first, the campus police took it kind of like, well, okay, she's a college student who's not answering the phone calls from her parents or boyfriend. She's not the first person to do that. Now, the police, they did go to one of her classes that day and try and see if she was there, but she never showed up for class. They then went to her dorm and spoke with her two roommates. The roommate said that Suzanne had a set of keys that always jingled a lot when she tried to open the door to unlock it so much so that they would hear it almost every night when she came home from work. But they said that on the night of March 2nd, they never saw her come home, and they never heard her keys jingling at the door. While police were speaking with their roommates, Mary began doing some investigating on her own. Mary called Suzanne's bank and tried to figure out about any bank activity used on her debit card. The bank told her that on March 3rd, around 4 p.m., $20 was taken out of the ATM at a gas station in Albany. 
while Suzanne hadn't been seen or heard from since March 2nd, it didn't seem like good news that her bank card was being used on the 3rd. But this at first kind of brought some relief. See, Suzanne was actually known to take out exactly $20 from an ATM whenever she was there. In fact, she used her debit card to take out $20 on March 2nd. So maybe she did just want to stay off the grid for a day or two. But the relief didn't last long before it turned into fear and worry again. Because two more days went by and Suzanne did not show up to any classes and she missed more exams that she had spent so much time studying for. Now, her parents and police knew that there was something more to this than Suzanne just wanting to stay away for a few days. So the college police department reported her missing and the case was then turned over to New York State Police. Investigators immediately went to the gas station where the ATM was used. The thought was that this was going to answer a whole lot of questions. Was she the one who used the ATM? Was she alone? Did she look to be in distress? But instead, investigators left that gas station with more questions than what they went with. Remember, this was 1998. Security cameras weren't used like they are today. This gas station had one camera and it was pointed directly at the register. The store clerk didn't remember anyone that looked like Suzanne coming in the store and using the ATM, but couldn't be for sure. After investigators reviewed the security footage, they only saw one person come to the counter around the same time that Suzanne's debit card was used. The man was not clearly identifiable through the video, and all they could tell was that he was a black man wearing a Nike hat. The police put out flyers and set up billboards trying to identify this man. They weren't saying that he was a suspect because they couldn't say that he used her card at the ATM. But maybe he was a witness. Maybe he saw something with Suzanne or someone else at the ATM. But this man went unidentified for over a year. And he eventually became known as the Nike Man. Eventually the Nike Man was identified when he realized that there were flyers and billboards looking for him. He went and he spoke with police. They were able to completely rule him out. He just happened to be in the store at the time purchasing some items. And unfortunately this was a year after Suzanne went missing and he couldn't remember seeing anyone at the ATM when he was in the store. Other than the Nike man, there's really only one other person that investigators thought may have been involved in Suzanne's disappearance. And I'm sure you know who this person's going to be. I'm gonna confirm your suspicions right after the break. Over the last few years, I've been writing a fictional book called One Moment and it's now available on Amazon. It's based in St. Augustine, Florida, and it tells the story of Micah and Sarah. After spending six years in the army, Micah returned to his hometown. Returning home was never part of his plan, but after the physical, emotional, and mental stress from war, home was the best place for him. Sarah is beginning to put her life back together after escaping an abusive marriage. At 24 years old, she's a 911 dispatcher living in St. Augustine. While she is starting to heal, she crosses paths with Micah. Immediately, there is an undeniable connection between the two of them, and they know that they were put in each other's lives for a reason. When Sarah's jealous and abusive ex-husband finds out about the new relationship, he has to get involved himself. While this puts a strain on Sarah and Micah's relationship, dark secrets begin to come out, and they learn that maybe you never truly know someone sometimes the best and the worst things in life can all be traced back to one moment. One Moment's available now on Amazon. It's $9.99 for a paperback copy and $2.99 for an ebook. 
The Amazon link is in the show notes. And if you read it, I really hope you enjoy it. And please let me know what you think of it. As I'm sure you were expecting, just like with any other case, investigators began honing in on Susan's boyfriend, Richard. One thing that stood out with Richard, he told investigators that there were only two people that knew Susan's PIN code for her debit card, and those two people were Susan and himself. But Richard had an alibi of some sort. The night that Susan went missing, he was playing video games online with a friend. This friend confirmed that he was playing games with Richard around the time frame that Susan went missing. And to add a little more, remember, this isn't like playing online games today. They weren't video chatting or chatting over headphones. The friend said that he knew it was Richard though, because the person that he was playing with online played with the same playing style as Richard. And as airtight as this alibi seems, things only begin to look a little more weird for Richard. After his first interview with police, Richard got a lawyer. He then refused to take a polygraph test and now this isn't necessarily mean he's guilty, and while it may even be a smart move, it doesn't do him any favors, and it doesn't look that good for him. And then there's this. Richard told police that when Susan disappeared, they were engaged to be married, which was news to her parents, especially Mary. Because Mary and Susan were very close. They either emailed or talked on the phone almost every day, and Susan never mentioned anything about being engaged. In fact, Mary said that Susan had tried to end the relationship with Richard multiple times, but he would just become very emotional and then she would end up staying with him. But that kind of became the end of the Richard theory. There was never any evidence that could connect him to her disappearance. But a few more things did come to light. One of Suzanne's co-workers went to police and told them that about a month before she went missing, Suzanne felt like she was being stalked by someone. But she never went into any further details about this with the co-worker and she never had an idea of who it may have been. Then about a month after her disappearance, Suzanne's name tag was found. And it was found only 90 feet from where she got off the bus in the parking lot. But it was on the opposite side of the parking lot from where she would have been walking if she got off the bus and went straight to her dorm. Also, this is really odd and it's almost like it was placed there. Suzanne had been missing for about a month when her name tag was found, and by this time everyone on campus had known about the disappearance and search parties and police had covered the parking lot looking for any potential clues. But nothing was found. So how would the name tag get missed by so many people? Investigators ran several tests on the name tag, but there was no forensic evidence that was found on it. So as odd as the name tag being found there was, it didn't bring them any answers. Then there was another case that was brought to light. 13 years before Suzanne went missing, another student at the same college named Karen Wilson was last seen getting off a bus near campus. Karen also disappeared without any trace of evidence or suspects. Her case still remains unsolved as well, and while there's been nothing to officially link the two cases, law enforcement has considered the possibility that they are connected. While Suzanne's case is still unsolved, her parents never gave up fighting, and not only for her, but for other missing people specifically college students. Suzanne's dad, Doug, died in 2015, but from the time that Suzanne went missing until his death, he and Mary spent their time pushing for change. One of the big things that Mary and Doug felt hindered this case from the beginning was the delay in reporting Suzanne missing. In 1999, thanks to Doug and Mary's efforts, the Campus Safety Act, which was referred to as Suzanne's Law, was passed in the state of New York. 
This act required colleges in the state to have a detailed plan on how to handle and investigate missing person cases at colleges. And this brings us to a conclusion of this episode of Crime Nerds. Thank you for listening.